Hello and welcome to Top in Tech, a Global Council podcast. Today, we're going to talk about the EU's AI Act, which is seen as the first piece of major cross-cutting AI legislation globally. We've seen in recent media reports, however, about trouble in the negotiations. Euractiv had a recent headline saying, the EU's AI Act negotiations hit the brakes over foundation models. And there's lots of speculation now that the AI Act may not be agreed ahead of the EU elections in June. There's lots riding on this. President von der Leyen made a major commitment to introducing AI legislation at the start of her term as Commission President, and the EU has ambitions to get a first-mover advantage by setting the regulatory standards globally. Needless to say, delays to the AI Act could put that ambition in jeopardy. And here to talk us through this today is Natasha Dixon, who's leading GC's coverage of the AI Act in our EU policy team. So Natasha, thanks very much for joining me today. Could we just start off by you providing us with a pen portrait of where we started in these negotiations? So when the so-called trilogue negotiations between the European Parliament and the Council began several months ago, where were they? How close together were they or how, how split were they on some of the major issues? If we go back to this June, which is when trilogue negotiations began, there was quite widespread recognition that these would be difficult, high stakes negotiation, not only because of the issue at hand, artificial intelligence, but also because of the considerable divergence between the Council and the European Parliament's positions. So at that time, a lot of this divergence was attributed to the different institutional timelines in terms of reaching their final positions and how this coincided with wider technological change. Because the Commission, when it published its initial proposal, this was April 2021, AI was barely on the public's agenda and the EU was really the first jurisdiction to consider regulating it. Fast forward to the Parliament's internal negotiations to reach their position and CHAP GPT had exploded onto the market, bringing with it increased political salience and public concern. So against this backdrop emerged two quite different positions from the Parliament and the Council. And there are kind of four points that I think are quite important to pick up on to kind of illustrate the different starting points between the institutions. So the first is around high-risk AI systems, which has largely been eclipsed by fiercer institutional debates in recent weeks. But this debate was really around what types of AI system would be considered high-risk. So you normally hear that referred to as Annex 3, and also what the obligations for these systems would be. And this was an early point of difference between the institutions. On the council side, you had quite a lot of exempt use cases when it came to law enforcement, which I'm sure will come up again in today's discussion. And then on the parliament side, you had quite a long list of high risk use cases. Another point of difference, which again is something I think is important for us to pick up here, but has largely fallen out of the headlines, is around governance and how the AI Act itself would be enforced and which regulatory bodies would be involved, what their powers would be, these types of issues. So in the original proposal, it was really national competent authorities that were in the driving seat. And then you had this AI board that was kind of 
providing a coordinating role. But then the European Parliament decided that they wanted to go in a more centralised direction, replacing this AI board with an AI office, which would basically be a new EU agency. So there's your second point of kind of difference between the two. Now, if we move to the final two points, which were a lot more contentious and they've really dominated, as you said, the news agenda in recent weeks. And the first one is around prohibited practices. So this has been a source of fierce institutional debate for quite a long time. The European Parliament started off its negotiating position significantly expanding the list of prohibited practices. So they included things like biometric categorization, predictive policing, and the one that has got the most attention, which is real-time biometric identification. So the parliament wanted a complete prohibition on all of these practices um, because of their concerns about the risks of mass surveillance. And then on the other side, in the council's position, when they started off, member states were seeking quite significant carves out to those kind of prohibited practices for national security and law enforcement purposes. And then the final one, this is now quite a long list of differences between the two, but that really illustrates my point, was around foundation models, which I know we saw the episode with and we will definitely get into more but there was quite a significant divergence and this was because of the timeline point whilst the European Parliament was kind of creating these obligations for foundation models amidst chat GPT's emergence the council really hadn't con- considered it very much so you ended up with the council deferring the question of foundation models to the commission and then you had the parliament introducing quite stringent obligations which have now become known as tiered obligations for the most powerful foundation models so yeah that's quite a lengthy way to say we started off with two quite divergent positions i guess just to make the point that even though the positions were quite divergent, at least at the start of this process, there was a common consensus between the Parliament, the Council and the European Commission in favour of getting this legislation done and getting this legislation done before the European elections take place next year. We'll come on a little bit later to get your view, Natasha, on whether that has changed and whether we've seen any divergence on that fundamental point of timing. But if I could go on, I think you called them the last two points that were really contentious there. And the first one I think you mentioned was prohibited practices and this issue around facial recognition technology and biometrics. Can you just go into a little bit more detail about about the issue and just how far apart the two sides are? So when the trilogue negotiations started, the two were already quite far apart, I would say, around this list of prohibited practices, which does include facial recognition. Over the course of trilogue negotiations, these positions actually appeared to cement and get further apart, with the European Parliament framing its prohibition on facial recognition as a real red line in negotiations and pointing to its own internal votes on the matter, which really showed that there was quite widespread support for this complete prohibition on facial recognition. Then on the council side, EU member states, especially France, became very vocal during the Spanish presidency and they were really pushing for national security exemptions to the ban on facial recognition. And they were pointing also to the forthcoming Paris Olympics as kind of an example of where this technology could be used and could work quite effectively. So... We've had this situation where they started off pretty far apart, have got further apart and are 
as usually happens in recent weeks, they do seem to have come a bit closer together, especially on the European Parliament side. So there does seem to be some recognition from negotiators on the Parliament side that a complete prohibition on this real-time biometric identification, which is the key issue that they're concerned with, probably won't survive and probably won't end up in the final text. And there's an understanding that there would need to be some narrow exemption in terms of law enforcement as the member states want. But this will likely result in a predetermined list of kind of serious crimes where this technology might be allowed and also quite specific limitations on time, geographical and personal scope. But as happens in Brussels, this horse trading situation emerges where the European Parliament have given some ground on its red line. And in in exchange for these exemptions, we are likely to see the European Parliament call for maybe a retention of that long list of prohibitive practices I mentioned at the start, or maybe even something on foundation models. So yeah, this is an area where negotiations are moving a bit closer, but that we need to uh, watch for. Okay, so let's pick up that point you mentioned about foundation models. Foundation models are obviously underpinning new generative AI and other large language model technologies like ChatGPT or BARD or equivalents that we've seen companies like Anthropic and Meta, Stability AI and so on and so forth that have launched over the past year and that have launched in a way that is very much consumer facing. There's been a lot of consumer general public interaction with these tools, which is unprecedented compared to the development of AI prior to last year. So where is that going, Natasha? We've seen a blizzard of media coverage. I read out one of the headlines. What are the different proposals and does it look like we might have a landing zone? If we start off with the different proposals, on the European Parliament side, they're really seeking a tiered obligation system for foundation models where the most powerful models would face additional stringent obligations around transparency, around disclosure of requirements. So one big obstacle here, which you were kind of getting at in your question as well, is around this definition itself of foundation models. How would you designate a threshold for the most capable models like GPT, like BARD? It's quite similar to that question that came up during the DSA's passage, which is where do you position this threshold. And this has gone through various iterations over the course of the last weeks. There's been talk of very capable models, there's been talk of high impact models, but it all basically gets at the same point, which is the parliament want the most powerful models to have the most stringent obligations and then other foundation models to have less stringent obligations. Then we move to the council side, which has been the source of this blizzard of media coverage, because there are even greater obstacles. Whilst at the last trilogue negotiations, which was end of October, there was supposedly some kind of informal agreement that they would move to this tiered obligation system that I outlined, this convergence has now completely dissolved um, after some quite extensive lobbying from so-called national champions in France and Germany. The two countries communicated to the Spanish presidency, who is leading negotiations, that they did not support any regulation for foundation models. So you've moved from, in a few weeks, a position of, okay, we're going to have this tiered situation to no, we don't want any regulation, which is quite an extreme change. 
And since then, Italy has joined the fray alongside France and Germany, and the trio have produced a proposal which moves very far away from this stringent transparency reporting and risk mitigation obligations, and is instead calling for what they say is self-regulation through codes of conduct. This proposal is still quite vague. We're having various media reports, different non-papers emerging. But basically, the only transparency requirement for these capable foundation models would be model cards. So they provide information on the model's capabilities and potential limitations. So as you said, for consumer facing models, we would be provided with this model card, kind of like what you might get on the back of a food packet. That's what they're envisioning anyway. So now to the second part of your question about is this a landing zone? How do we move from these two very, very divergent positions now? The commission has attempted to kind of get the two sides together. They've released a new compromise text which tries to preserve these tiered obligations but also tries to shift away from foundation models and they've now introduced more obligations under general purpose AI, which is a different definition. As I said, lots of definitions, quite confusing. But in my view, I don't really see the commission's latest text as a landing zone. I think it will require quite a lot more work. Um, But there is considerable political will, as you said, to reach an agreement. And I think the sticking point really is this Franco-German-Italian contingent. If they don't move, the Spanish presidency's hands are tied. They don't have a qualified majority to negotiate and it makes things quite sticky, which is why you've got so much concern in the media at the moment. Okay, well, let's jump into that core issue about whether this is a major breakdown in negotiations or not. Thinking back to the time that I spent working in the European Parliament, typically, if France and Germany wanted something within council, they got it. And if you add the weight of Italy to that as well, that is further reinforced. And I guess there is this question that with the European Parliament committed to bringing in legislation to protect consumers from potential harms of AI ahead of the European elections, the onus is potentially on them to shift a little bit towards the position of France and Germany, though they will obviously expect some concessions in in return. So, interest to get whether you think that's a sort of fair characterization that we think the Parliament may budge and actually this could end up in, in a deal or whether this might be something more like the e-privacy negotiations, which we saw five years ago, where both sides stayed in their respective uh, positions, didn't move, and that legislation has never seen the light of day. So, Well, this is the million-dollar question. (laughs) Um, Is this the usual Brussels kind of grandstanding, horse trading, or is this something more? In my opinion, I do see this as something more. I do think we've reached a point of true institutional gridlock, but I don't think that that necessarily means that we will end up with a breakdown of negotiations and that there will be no movement. I think what I was saying earlier about the Spanish presidency really having its hands tied by France, Germany and Italy 
it holds true and this is really the the sticking point. And as you said, these are the three biggest economies in the EU. They are a powerful bloc and if they want something to happen, it's pretty certain that the parliament will have to shift in some way. But I do think that there is still quite little room for negotiations. And I mean, there has been some suggestion from parliament negotiators that they would move, but I think they'll be quite reluctant to give up everything as the trio would like them to do. But and caveat to all of this is institutional gridlock that we see right now does not necessarily mean that negotiations will break down as in the example of the e-privacy regulation or that an agreement won't eventually be reached. There are two very strong motivators on both sides of the table to reach a compromise on this issue. The first is time. There's considerable time pressures facing all of the institutions. There's this first quite, I would say, arbitrary political deadline of December the 6th, which is the last trial of negotiations and really the end of the road for the Spanish presidency. But beyond this quite politicised deadline, there is a real deadline, as you mentioned, which is more like mid-February. And by that point, there really does need to be an agreed text to ensure its adoption before European elections. And then the second motivator is this Brussels effect. I think it's quite easy to underestimate how wedded EU policymakers across the institutions are to the idea that the bloc's regulation of AI is influencing national and multilateral decisions around the world on the governance of AI. And I think these two factors together really will push a compromise, will push an agreement. I'm not sure whether that will come in December. I think likely not. I do think that this issue might cross over into the Belgian presidency, which starts in January. But I don't think it can be taken for granted granted that the EU really can't lose face. It can't go from being the first mover to dragging its feet. And I've heard some parliament negotiators say, you know, if we don't agree something before the elections, then we probably won't agree something till April 2025. And that's just not a reality that European negotiators want. So again, short answer to all of that is, yes, we have institutional gridlock right now. I think that this is quite a an unprecedented situation, but I don't think we're going to end up with no agreement. Yeah, I mean, I think I share your analysis. If we take it back to where I started the podcast around President von der Leyen, she actually committed to legislation being proposed within her first 100 days. She actually missed that target because given the complexity of an issue, that was always very unrealistic. But to have not secured any AI legislation in her term would be a pretty big damage to her record and to her potential legacy. So she personally and the commission will be invested and will be really pushing the other institutions in order to get a deal. And also, if you think about France, for example, Commissioner Breton and the French government have been very keen to get this idea of an AI pact or whatever we're calling it, i.e. implementing the AI Act before you technically have to implement it under EU law. So France wants to do that and to push that in order to ensure that European first mover advantage, but at the same time is going to hold back the conclusion of that deal. We obviously have a contradictory position. So even the French government has been pushing this this issue around open source and around foundation models has has, has other priorities that could act as an incentive to get a deal done. So before we conclude, Natasha, just on a very practical point, and it's a very fast moving situation 
But could you just over the next few weeks, what are the what are the milestones? I think you said was it the sixth of December was one deadline, but what what should listeners be looking out for? So at the moment, there are various technical meetings ongoing. But as you said, the real milestone for listeners to look out for is this December 6th trialogue. This really is a pivotal moment for the AI Act, whether a political agreement is reached or not. And I think anyone interested in the AI Act, which is all of us probably, should be looking to Brussels on this day. But before that, I think it's worth following to the extent that you can through the media or other sources, the machinations that occur before then, and it will put you in quite a good position to judge the December 6th trialogue. There's another technical trialogue taking place today, which will kind of illuminate whether there's been any movement on this Franco-German-Italian alliance. Um, And there will also be a meeting between member states, telecoms ministers the day before trialogues. So that's obviously getting very close to the wire, but does reflect the length that the Spanish presidency is willing to go to. But yeah, focus on December 6th, try to follow things that come before then. And beyond this, if no agreement is reached this year, then we'll will be confronted with a whole host of new dates and a very real political deadline ahead of the European elections. So lots to look out for. Great. So all eyes on 6th of December. And to anyone listening, if you are following this and want to get more of the inside information from Natasha and from other colleagues, don't hesitate to get in touch with us. You can find our contact details in the podcast notes or indeed just go on to the website, which is www.global-council.com. Natasha and team will obviously be tracking this extremely closely over the next few weeks leading up to the 6th and after the 6th. And if there are those additional dates, we'll be following that extremely closely too. So very happy to talk to you or colleagues if you're interested in our analysis in this area. Thanks very much for joining us today, and hopefully you'll see us on the line next week. Bye-bye.